In John's gospel, there are various I am statements. One I bet you're familiar with is the one that says, I am the bread of life. In fact, it's recorded for us in John chapter 6, verse 48. That's where we will pause tonight and take a bit of a look. This extraordinary Lamb of God made that statement, I am the bread of life. Building on something quite ordinary, he declared something quite extraordinary. He took food elements which we partake of regularly, as if to say, whenever you pause to nourish yourself physically, don't forget your soulish needs. You're spiritually hungry. And I have bread, no, I am bread, that can satisfy the longings of your soul, your spiritual hunger. I am the bread of life. And the Lord Jesus made that statement to a primarily Jewish audience, and because they were Jews, he reminds them of bread of a different kind they once consumed. It's in verse 49. Uh, the Lord, who is the bread of life, said, your fathers ate the manna food. You ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. And you know the story, Israel was ancient Israel, a slave people, and she cried out to God for deliverance, and on the basis of her cry for his mercy, he heard, when you demand your rights, I'm not sure God listens, but when you cry for mercy, he surely does. And so he heard Israel's cry for help and delivered them. Uh, and didn't only set them free from a very cruel bondage, he determined to bring them to a place of promise, to a, a land, a land of promise. But to get there would take them 40 years. It, it, it needn't have taken that long, but sin makes you go in circles, and you don't get to the place of promise directly because of sin, so they wandered rather aimlessly in the wilderness for 40 years. Though delivered, saved, if you will, um, they needed to be sustained. Would this God who saved them, would he sustain them in their wilderness wanderings? Well, the answer is yes. And so God the Father very graciously supplied this hitherto unknown source of food, manna, through Moses. And the ancient Israelites partook of this very wonderful, supernaturally provided for bread in the wilderness, but they died nonetheless. That food, that wonderful manna, was fit for this life only. It did not have inherent power to bequeath and bestow eternal life upon those who ate it. And so the Israelites ate, but eventually died. And this Jesus draws a contrast between the food which Moses gave them and the food that he brings. And so he says in verse 50, this is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. And so Jesus said, I have 
No, he says, I am sustenance. I am bread of a different kind. I am from heaven, says he. And I possess and am willing to bequeath life of an eternal kind. A person, says he, who eats this bread will simply not die. Well, you and I know we could call that into question because people do die. In our midst here is a church family regularly where um, participants in the passing of someone, friend or family member of one of our church family members, people do die physically. But even the one who dies physically, if that one has taken in, has consumed Jesus, yet he will live. You know, uh, I don't know if it's a privilege. I don't know what you call it. It's an opportunity. As one of the ministers in the church, I have the opportunity to attend many funerals, and I see such a stark difference in the proceedings when it is a believer who's gone home in contrast to one who doesn't know the Lord. There are words of comfort and hope and help and warning which we could offer when it's an unsaved person who has passed. But when a saved person passes, though there's legitimate grief, the grief of temporary separation, I see the evidence of the truthfulness of Scripture which says, though we grieve, we don't grieve as those without hope. It's a mixed emotional experience. We are sad and sorry about the separation, but so grateful uh, that our loved one has been promoted to the most wonderful place, the very presence of the head of the church, Jesus, the bread of life. But there's nothing mixed about the uh, departure of an unsaved person. We, we, there's, there's little we could say at that particular point. So, so here Jesus says, yes, we die a physical death, but the sting of death has been canceled out by what he himself has done for us. And so we know and believe that to be absent from this body, there's only one option if you're a believer, is to be, is to be present with the Lord. And this is so fantastic that the notion bears repeating because it's a little hard to sink in. And so the Lord repeats it in similar words in verse 51. He said, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. So Jesus, the bread of life, I mentioned to you, is speaking to Jewish people. However, he is speaking about bread he is willing to offer to all people, hence the phrase, for the life of the world, the entire world. This is not to say that the entire world, each of its individuals will be saved. It is to save, say that what Jesus did is sufficient for anyone, anywhere, to be an heir of eternal life. So maybe you're asking, what specifically is this bread leading to life eternal? 
Well, it is the sacrificed life of Jesus himself. He says so. And the bread also, which I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. And so clearly here the Lord is speaking of his death on a cross for the sins of the world. He would give his life, he says, as a ransom for sinners. His, his body would be broken. His blood would be poured out as a sacrifice for sins. He would die willingly as a sin substitute. He would pay the penalty that our sins demand. In John chapter 1, verse 14, a million years ago, we were there. Maybe you remember the statement wherein we read Jesus was the Word and the Word became flesh. And now we're reading uh, that he will give up his flesh for the life of the world. So Jesus offers his life. It's heavenly bread, and he offers it for a heavenly and eternal life. But the bread that Jesus offers must be eaten. It's some rough language here, isn't it? But I'm, I think I'm only repeating what the scriptures are saying. We must eat Jesus. It's a little strange a concept, isn't it? Well, hang in there. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about it. When you take in food, however, literal physical food, when you eat food, it becomes part of you, doesn't it? And, and so too, when you take in uh, Jesus by faith, his life becomes a part of your life. And so eating the living bread, Jesus, is a figure of speech, meaning it means to believe in him. And so Jesus offers us heavenly bread for eternal life, but we must eat it. We must take it in. We must digest it. So admiring food, for instance, is not the same as eating food, is it? You could admire food from a distance all you want, but it has no nourishing, uh, pleasing value to you until you partake of it. And in the same way, admiring Jesus is not the same thing as believing in Jesus. Uh, people can come to church and admire uh, some of the attributes of Jesus, enjoy the songs and Maybe the words expressed and even the fine people. You could see things that are attractive to Jesus, but that's not the same thing as eating Jesus, as taking him in. He's of no value to you. There's no spiritual nourishment until he is personally uh, appropriated. And so that's essentially what's, what's going on here. And so what the Lord says was not very well received by the Jewish people who first heard what he said. In fact, they were rather repulsed by it. And so here's their response in verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? The whole concept was repulsive to them. It was some kind of cannibalistic thing, some cultic eating of human flesh. What, what is he talking about? And uh, I... I would expect the Lord to smooth things out, but he doesn't. And with all due respect to the Lord, what he says really makes things worse. Look, verse 53. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, he's already said that and caused trouble, and now what he does, and he adds to it, and drink his blood. Whoa. Now things are, unless you do that, you have no life in yourself. So, wow. Wow. 
he really has stirred things up. Now, the concept of eating his flesh was quite upsetting and abhorrent to them. But on top of it, when he talks about drinking his blood, they freak out. Why? Because they remember reading in their own Torah, written by their highest rabbi Moses, this in Leviticus chapter 3, verse 17. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwellings. You shall not eat any fat or any blood. And now this radical rabbi Jesus is saying the very opposite of Rabbi Moses, and he's saying, unless you drink my blood, there's no life in you. What are they to make of it for crying out loud? And just to show you about this blood thing, even to this very day, when I was a little Jewish kid, uh, I went to a thing called yeshiva, which is like, uh, it's a religious school. You go from eight in the morning till five at night. Even as an elementary school kid, you do Hebrew studies in the morning, you get a lunch break, some time in the playground, then you come back in for English studies until about five o'clock. That's the way it is. And during the break time, I went out to the playground at this yeshiva in New York, and I was playing, I don't remember what it was, stickball or who knows what, I don't remember. All I remember is I got a bloody lip. Some kid kicked the ball or hit me, I don't know what happened. All I remember, I was a little kid and I'm bleeding, so I I needed some help. So I went over to one of the rabbis. And I told him, Rabbi, Rabbi, I'm bleeding. And he said, don't swallow it. Don't swallow it. I mean, it wasn't a very sympathetic response at all for crying out loud. Good night, Rabbi. Chill out. No, chill out, nothing. Moses said, don't swallow the blood. And I'm, I don't think the rabbi cared if I keeled over and died as long as in the process I didn't swallow the the blood. So this Jesus says the very opposite of what they, have been, what they have been taught. Yeah, but you know, and I do, don't you, that the Lord was not speaking to them of literally eating his body and literally drinking his blood. He was telling them he was willing to die for them. He was willing to offer his body and blood but they must personally, by faith, appropriate it. That's what he was saying to them. You look, they should have known this. You know why? Because the same book of Torah that told them not to eat the blood told them this, Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. Isn't that true? If your blood pours out, your life is terminated. The life of the flesh is in the blood, God speaks here, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement, means like covering, to cover up for your sinful souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Their own Torah scriptures told them of the necessity of blood atonement. In the New Testament, we read without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins, and so they, they should have known about all this. Now, I want to take a little bit of a side trip here, just for a minute or two. Uh, I feel compelled to tell you this passage, I think, uh, 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 gives rise to some understandable misunderstandings, it seems to me. 
And uh, I'll share this with you. Tell me, maybe I'm the guy who has the misunderstanding. See what you think. Uh, there are some people who take what we're talking about here to be a reference to what we could call the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, uh, the taking in of the elements um, uh, during this holy time. So some would say this is a reference to that practice which we engage in uh, frequently here at this church and in, in many others. And so they would say that you see, it's necessary to eat Christ's body and drink his blood. And what happens during Holy Community, Communion is that the elements actually become the literal body and, and blood of Christ. And I can understand that. And you could see how this passage could give rise to that thought. But if you will allow me, even at the risk of maybe offending one of you who come from that background, I don't think that's what this is saying. But I'll tell you why. Holy communion, which is that very thing, quite holy, was not initiated yet. <laughs> it was inaugurated later on at what we refer to as the Last Supper. The Last Supper didn't happen yet. The Last Supper is a Passover dinner, a Passover Seder, we call it. During the Passover, the Lord Jesus took elements familiar to his Jewish uh, disciples and gave them an entirely new meaning. And he lifted up the unleavened bread and said, this is, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then the, and then the uh, fruit of the vine taken after dinner, he lifted it up and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is, which is poured out for you. So I, this can't be a reference to Holy Communion because that didn't come till later. Not only that, who are the only fit participants in Holy Communion? Believers, Holy Communion is not meant for unsaved people. But here, that's the very group the Lord is addressing his remarks to. He's speaking to unbelievers. So I don't think this is a reference to Holy Communion at all. But I think, though this doesn't speak of Holy Communion, Holy Communion speaks of this. So every time we enjoy the privilege of partaking of those very sacred elements here at the church, it obligates us to remember what Jesus has done for us. It's commemorative, and it memorializes an event that preceded it. Now, we don't denigrate the elements and treat them lightly, but uh, that being the case, we don't go so far as to say it is the actual body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Uh, it's, again, they're ordinary food elements to which an extraordinary reminder is attached. So that's just, it, different faith groups have different um, 